We have all experienced the universal fear of waking up in the middle of the night with the unshakable, desperate need to use the restroom. At first, you try to convince yourself back to sleep. It's 3 a.m. Surely you can go three, four more hours. And perhaps you do drift back to sleep. But it's always restless and short-lived. Eventually, you are commanded to leave your cozy nest of warmth and make the long, dark trek to the bathroom. For me, the second my feet touch the bedroom floor, I have a dreadful feeling of being exposed. I always rush to get my slippers on, keeping myself far from the sides of the bed. For who knows who or what could be hidden underneath. Ready and waiting to wrap a cold, bony hand around my bare ankles. I rush to cloak myself in my thick, fluffy dressing gown, my armor for the real battle, the descent down the twisting staircase. I rapidly flick on all the lights, burning my eyes and bathing the halls in a soft amber bloom. The stairs creak as I pad down them softly always fearing what is just beyond the final bend. For the lambency of the stairs light never illuminates the front hall, so I am plummeted into a new, dark, open space. It's a race to the light switch and a mixed feeling of relief and embarrassment as I look upon my own empty and pleasant home. But the bathroom, the final frontier of the journey, is always the most frightening. The bathroom light is cold, harsh, brilliantly white, and my sleepy eyes are never ready for its alabaster blaze. The tiles are freezing beneath my feet, and my slippers are no match for the cold. There are two mirrors in the bathroom, one on each opposite wall facing one another. I daren't look into one, for what might I see in the other? What if there is an image in one mirror that I can't see in the room. There is, of course, the black windows, full of night. What if someone is waiting outside of them? Then there is the negotiation of closing or keeping the bathroom door open. Do I shut myself in with the bathroom demons? Or do I leave the door open so I can catch a glimpse of the spirits in the hall closing in on me? But all of these fears pale in comparison to the shower. I always keep the shower curtain open. But of course, whenever you have to make the truly terrifying midnight pilgrimage, somehow the curtain is always closed. I know I didn't close it. So who did? What's behind it? An axe-wielding murderer? A ghostly lady ominously standing there waiting to pull you into the drain? Or maybe it's just a bath stocked with shampoo and conditioner. But my greatest fear is that it's none of these things, but rather a small, childlike creature. Dark, wet, stringy hair covering their face and falling down in a limp, greasy wave over their shoulders. They are crouched by the tap head down to their knees, covered in thick, syrupy blood. 
when it lifts its head to look at me. I fear it will have holes for eyes and rivers of foul, sanguineous fluid will be pouring out of the pits where its eyes should be. I fear that when it opens its mouth, it will have a thousand tiny slivers of teeth, like knives that grow and sharpen as its jaw unhinges. Its arms are also lengthening, longer, lankier, and certain to wrap themselves around me. Of course, I know this is all a ridiculous figment of my imagination. But that rationale does not make it any less scary in the moment. And before I can allow my bladder to dictate the rest of my night, I know that I will have to face the countless chilling horrors of the bathroom. Welcome to episode 34 of the West London Witch, a podcast where we share stories about those moments where we find ourselves very much not alone. It is such a treat when listeners like yourself write into the show. As I always say, these are your stories. So I was absolutely thrilled when Amy Omnamkara, a YouTuber, wrote to me about her haunted family home. A home so warm, light, and beautiful in the day, and yet so dark, cold, and ominous in the night. I invite all of you to settle in with a cup of coffee and prepare yourself for a truly haunting story. I'm Rebecca Strazina, and this is The West London Witch. Episode 34, The Contract of Life and death. I um, grew up in Rhode Island, and I grew up on an island off of Rhode Island. And uh, it's a, when I grew up, this area was very, very rural. It was beautiful, right by the, by the sea, right by the Atlantic Ocean. And I really had a lovely childhood. Um, I'm the last of six kids. So there was always a lot of activity going on around the house, but I spent most of my time outside. And uh, my sister and I would play out um, behind the house, which had a really nice creek. So, you know, we were down in the creek pulling up stones and making friends with salamanders and playing around um, the, the back fields. I mean, it was just like acres and acres of open land. It was just beautiful. Amy and her sister loved playing make-believe, and their favorite game was to pretend to be the Ingalls girls transversing America from their little house in the big woods to the expansive prairies of the Midwest. 
Her mother made the girls classic prairie dresses, complete with underskirts, aprons, and little cotton bonnets. It was a truly idyllic childhood. I felt so connected to the spirit of the land. It was almost like I could envision, um, you know, early Americans, you know, traipsing through the, the back property. It was really, really just an amazing, amazing place to grow up. However, this fairy tale, like so many other classics, took a very sad turn. When Amy was just nine years old, her mother passed away. She was very ill and uh, she was in the hospital at the time and I was never able to visit her or even um, talk to her on the phone. She just died. And uh, so, you know, my dad told us and it was, of course, very sad. But at the same time, I had this weird acceptance of it. I understood at the age of nine that this is just what happens. Like you're born and as soon as you're born, there's a contract and you just die at the end. And it's, it was just her time. So for a nine-year-old to already have that understanding, I think now is pretty extraordinary. After Amy's mom's passing, the family tried desperately and quickly to create whatever their new normal was to be. The day after the funeral, Amy went back to school, and the family jumped right back into everyday life. They didn't talk about mom, her illness, or her death. Life just resumed. So at about around 10, I started experiencing interesting things. And we do what we do. We try to explain it and try to just forget about it. And so my first experience was uh, me laying in my bed and feeling a a hand literally go down on my back. And it was not frightening. It was, it was loving, but I could feel the pressure. And the whole time I'm thinking to myself as I'm, as I'm laying there, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, like this is really happening. And at the same time, I'm like, I don't want it to end because it felt good. As strange and incredible as this experience was, it wasn't to be Amy's last encounter with the supernatural. So the next thing that started happening was that something was calling my name. And it was, it started out just really quiet and and almost short, like trying to get my attention. And sometimes it would get even louder. It'd be like, Amy, and I would turn around and of course there wouldn't be any anybody there. And it happened so often that I would actually respond and just be like, what? Like, come on, like, if you're gonna do this, talk to me, you know? And of course wouldn't, wouldn't talk to me. But this happened for, for quite a while and happened really throughout my time in this house. Another thing that happened was back in the day, This was, you know, back in the 70s, you know, early 80s. Um, We had phones that were, you know, connected to the wall or whatever, and they would have really, really, really long cords. It was so cool to have a really long cord on your phone because you could take, you know, you could walk around the house with it. Back before, you know, there was these little, you know, cell phones. 
So um, I was talking to a friend and I had the cord pulled and around up the stairs. So I was up the stairs, but I could see the front door. And the front door had a key um, chain to it, but it was unlocked. The door was shut, but the, the lock chain was down. And I'm talking to my friend and all of a sudden I see it start ticking back and forth. It's moving back and forth and there's no reason for it to be ticking back and forth. And I'm talking on the phone with my friend and I say, huh, that's interesting. I said, the lock is moving back and forth. And it wasn't like scary, but it was like, this is like really happening. Amy didn't tell anyone in the family about these experiences. She was the youngest of six and was convinced no one would take her seriously, let alone believe her. After that, like I said, now I'm starting to see shadows in the, the corner of my eye and I'm feeling uncomfortable at times. I'm feeling like somebody is around me. And it's, it's not scary, but it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. As Amy gets older, the activity in the house begins to escalate. Things begin to move around the house or just go missing altogether. At first, she rationalized the activity away as coincidences. But over time, it was apparent that this phenomenon was real and intentional. At night, and this happened, this was happening early on when I would go to bed at night. I slept in my own room and I would go to bed and I would pull the covers over and the room would get really, really cold, really cold. And I would pull the blanket and I knew, oh, this I'm feeling something's coming in the room, actually. And I would pull the blanket around me and just like have my little nose out. That My nose was freezing at the time. I could smell the scent of roses. This happened every single night. And the thing about the roses for me was that when my mother was was in the funeral home. My father had purchased a bed of roses to lay on top of the casket. And so I thought, well, you know, I'm just a little, I'm just a little kid at the time. I, I, but I can still reason this. And I'm thinking to myself, well, maybe I'm just like, maybe this is just like a memory thing coming into me. You know, like, I don't, I don't really know what this is, but it happened every single night. The room would get cold, I would smell the roses, and then it would go. The smelling of the roses wasn't the only activity to happen at night. For it was the nighttime when the activity really ramped up. I could hear downstairs in the kitchen every single night. I could hear down in the kitchen someone moving around, purposely moving around, doing something. As if they were making a meal. I could hear someone moving from one side of the kitchen to the other side of the kitchen. I could, you know, I could hear those, those sounds. These sounds were really unsettling to Amy. So much so that she began to dread ever having to go downstairs after sunset. She created nightly rituals to help her sleep and keep her company during the unnerving nighttime hours. 
one year, I don't know how it was either for, I think it was for Christmas. I got a stereo system, right? Super cool, right? Super cool with the big speakers, right? And it had, it had um, a record player on the top and two um, cassette, you know, decks. It was a really cool, you know, stereo system where you could put a cassette in and then at the end, when the cassette is done, it would just click off, but the power would stay on. So I would put the same cassette in every single night and I would hit play and then I would go to sleep. And the next morning I would wake up to expect to see the cassette had played all the way through and the power was off, but it would always go off in the middle of the tape, but the power would still be on. And this happened night after night, after night, after night. One night I went to bed, I turned the cassette on and I had like a short amount of sleep, probably like an hour. And I woke up and the cassette had turned off, but the power was still on. So I got up and I looked and the cassette had stopped in the middle, early in the middle of the tape. And I said, this is crazy. Like, what is this? Somebody is coming in the room and turning the cassette off. What's happening? So I marched downstairs, my father and my sister were watching TV and I marched downstairs and I said, who came in my room and turned off my, my stereo? And they just kind of looked at me and they were like, nobody. And I said, well, this keeps happening. Somebody keeps coming into my room. I was like furious at this point. And I said, somebody keeps coming into my room and turning the tape off in the middle of the tape. And they just kind of looked at me like, I don't know what, I don't know what you're talking about. It didn't happen after that. It was like, I, whatever it was, I called it out and it didn't, didn't want me. I felt like it didn't want me to share. It's almost like this personal relationship that I was having with this energy. It did not want me to share these things with them. So Amy didn't. She never discussed it further with her family. Nor did she tell them about the footsteps she could hear throughout the house, the scent of the roses, the movement in the kitchen, or the shadows she could see around the corners of the home. As I got older, um, again, these things are, are still happening. I'm, I'm, you know, this has gone through high school and I'm about, in, I'm in college now and I'm still living at home. The house had two bathrooms, but the bathroom on the second floor didn't work. So if you had to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, you had to go downstairs. And I did not want to go downstairs. And there were nights where I would have to go downstairs. And so what I would do is I would get up and I would turn my light on and I would turn the hallway light on and I would turn every light on to get to the bathroom, which was all the way downstairs and on the other side of the house. And I always made sure to just look straight ahead. Just look straight ahead. Don't look around. Don't spend any time being curious. Just get to the bathroom, do what you need to do, and come back up. So this one night, I had to go to the bathroom. And I said, I'm not, I'm not getting up. I'm not doing it. So I would fall back asleep, and I'd wake up a few minutes later. 
and I still feel like I needed to go to the bathroom. And I kept, I really kept fighting this because I, I don't know. I just felt like I really, really, really didn't want to go down the stairs. So I said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go down downstairs. And it was, it was August. I remember it was August and it was early in the morning where like the sun, it the sun wasn't coming up. It wasn't a sunrise, but it was definitely like a little bit lighter outside than it was in the house. So I could see. So I decided that night or that morning that I wasn't going to turn on the lights And so I left my bed, I walked down the stairs, I walked through the hall, I walked through the kitchen, I walked through the dining room, and I walked into the bathroom. So I'm sitting, I'm sitting on the pot, on the toilet, and I don't shut the door to the bathroom. The bathroom is, 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 the bathroom door is open. And so I'm sitting on the toilet and the door is on my left in front of me is the shower curtain and across from this room is the den and I can see into the den but I don't want to really look in there and so I'm looking at the shower curtain and I know that something is in the den I know it and I'm sitting there and honest to god it was the longest pee in the world So so I'm sitting there and I slowly look over to the left and look in the room and I don't see anything. And so I look straight ahead at the shower curtain and I know that there is something in there and I decide to take a look again and there's nothing there. And so I continue to look at the shower curtain and I'm looking at all the swirls and the designs and, you know, trying to, trying to focus like I, I, but I, man, I know there's something in there and I do it again. I look to the left and this time I really take a look and from the side of the doorway of the den, this figure pulls its head out and I can see their head and their shoulder and I am staring at it and it is staring at me. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm not seeing this. I'm not seeing this. I'm not seeing this. But at the same time, this blast of hot air goes from the figure across my legs and I'm following it, follow it right through the wall. And I know right then and there, this is real. As you can imagine, Amy lets out a blood-curdling scream. She bolts out of the bathroom and runs through the house screaming, There's somebody in the house! There's somebody in the house! There's somebody in the house! My father comes down the stairs, comes running down the stairs with a baseball bat. And I'm telling him, I'm yelling at him. I'm saying, there's somebody in the house. There's somebody in the house. And I'm saying in my head, there's nothing in the house. Like, you know, there's nothing here. So he walks around the house and he doesn't see anything. And I don't tell him anything. So the next morning I said to him, I'm really sorry. You know, I I really thought that I saw something. I really thought that I saw somebody in the house. And didn't I didn't say anything else. And he said, that's okay. So... So I'm really 
and at, at that time I was frightened because now I was was seeing it at this point. And I didn't know if it was evil. I didn't know what it was, but it was enough that it was showing itself to me. And that was frightening to me. Amy didn't see whatever it was again in person, but it was always there, ever present, and still making itself known. Even after Amy moved out of the house, she still experienced the energy when she went back home. My dad was in the hospital and he asked me to take care of the dog. So I was working at the time and that meant that I'd have to sleep in the house. And I really didn't want to, but I was going to do it. I was going to do it. So I went over and um, was taking care of the dog and I had to work the next morning and I hadn't lived in the house in a couple of years. So um, I went upstairs and I was going to sleep in my old bedroom, but my old bedroom didn't have an alarm clock. So I took the alarm clock from my dad's room and I brought it into my room and I decided that I was going to set it for uh, two minutes ahead so that I can make sure that the alarm clock worked. So I set the, the uh, alarm clock two minutes ahead and I sat on the end of the bed and it was complete silence in the house. Okay. So I'm sitting there and all of a sudden, I can hear big band music in the kitchen downstairs. It's big band music. And I am sitting there and I'm listening to it. And I said, oh, no, no, I am not staying here. I'm not staying here. So I grabbed stuff and I I left the poor dog behind. I left and I ran out of the house. And that was it. As Amy's dad got older, and was still in the home, she decided she would ask him if he had ever had any unexplained experiences in the house. And he said, yes. He said, I I have. And he said, I never told you about it because I didn't want to scare you. And so we were able to have this exchange of of what was happening in the house. Um, And he, he, you know, he apologized to me because he he felt bad that this was was happening and that I was living this and didn't have anybody to talk to. After Amy's dad's passing, the family decided that it was time to let go of the family home. And the house was to be um, cleared out. And, you know, we had to do all of those closing of the house and and I had a key to the house and my brother asked me to drop the key off at the house and he would pick it up later. And so I went to the house and I went into the back hall. I just walked into the back hall of the house and I was hit with this heaviness. It was like thick, thick soup. And um, I walked in, in through the back hallway and I walked through the kitchen and still feeling this walked through the dining room and I could only make it to the living room and I had to sit down and I sat on the couch and it was like I was in between two worlds the house was completely silent I was so drained, I couldn't get up off the couch. And I honestly have no idea how long I was sitting there. 
the house was so um, sad and so heavy. I, like I said, I have no idea how long I was sitting there. I could have been sitting there for 10 minutes or an hour. And finally, I had to just really get my act together and get up and leave the house. I wanted to really go through the whole house and walk through the, the whole house, but I just, I just couldn't. And so I left the house, left the key, never went back to the house. And even to this day, I don't even like driving by the house. It's, it, it doesn't feel like my, my house. It's enough for me to have the memories of it. You know, I don't need to go by and, and look at it. That home was the only house Amy's parents ever owned and lived in. The family's life revolved around the house and the land. It was such a special and magical place. So I asked Amy why they let it go, why she or one of her siblings didn't move their family into it. You know, I regret, I regret not, but, you know, everybody had their own homes at that time and had their own lives. And quite frankly, I was a little wary about moving back into that house with the experiences that I had. I felt such a connection to that house. I felt like I didn't know what would happen after that. Years later, Amy asked her siblings if they had ever had experiences in the home, but they were emphatic. They insisted that they had never had any sort of paranormal experiences. I was, I was the only blessed one. That's how I look at it. I was the lucky one. I do believe, I do believe it was my, my mother's spirit. I really do. It didn't, you know, I didn't have those experiences before her death. Amy, I know you say that you think that this spirit in the house was your mother, but that experience that you had in the bathroom was so terrifying. Do you think that that was your mom? I think it could have been, I don't know if it was my mom, but it may be a part of her essence. I don't feel like it was evil. I mean, I, I, who, who knows? You know, I mean, I, I do feel, um, I used to have these like really, really vivid dreams about her and she would, I would have like this, this, it was kind of like the same theme, but it was only like once a year I would have it where she would come back and um, it would be like, oh, like she's been missing and she came back. And like the whole dream was about me trying to um, get her attention to tell her how much I loved her, right? Because I wasn't allowed that. I didn't get that opportunity, you know, when she was in the hospital. And I was never able to say, I love you. And I had one, I've never dreamed about her since. I had this one final dream. I walked into the house, the same house, walked into the house. The dining room was all full of daffodils. And I walked through the dining room and I went into the back den and I was laying on the floor reading the newspaper, this crappy newspaper, our town newspaper. And my mother came in and she sat down on the chair and the room was just, it was bright. It was like a summer day. It was beautiful. And she said, I, she said, you know, Amy, she said, you were always the funny one. And 
I crawled over and I put my arms around her and she was real soft and real feminine figure and I could feel it. And she said, um, she said, I'll always love you. And I was holding her and thinking to myself, please don't wake up. Please don't wake up. Please don't wake up. Like I knew I was like in this lucid dream and I woke up and felt so loved and so amazing. And I never had another dream about her since. Never. So yes, I do feel like she was visiting me and she was protecting me and, you know, and, and being a part and being a part of the, of the house, you know, I don't, I don't think she necessarily wanted to leave, you know, she didn't want to leave her children. And so she was still in the house. I was rather shocked that Amy described these experiences as blessings. To me, they're terrifying scary and really uncomfortable. But I think this goes back to how Amy views death. Even as a child, she understood the delicate contract of life and death. And as an adult, she works with hospice patients to help them transition to life on the other side. She has a much more uplifting view of death than I do. She's not scared of the end, of the contract coming to a close. She sees the beauty in the afterlife and the gift of the signs from the other side. I admire and envy her ability to see death as just another chapter in one's story. If you'd like to hear more from Amy, you can check out her YouTube channel, Anamkara, Awaken with the Literate Yogi. Amy has videos on everything from paranormal, tarot cards, crystals, and even an interview with me. Check her out, and don't forget to subscribe and comment. Do you have a spooky story you'd like to share? I'd love to hear it. Drop me an email at thewestlondonwitch at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at thewestlondonwitch. If you enjoyed today's episode, Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. And come and follow us for additional content on Instagram and Facebook. Until next time, merry meet, merry part, and merry meet again. The West London Witch is created by me, Rebecca Strazina. Our sound designer and production magician is the incredible Danny Cross. Our theme music was bespokely written and performed by the wickedly talented Kyle Hall. Our cover art is the beautiful collaboration between Lizzie Wilson and Jake Bowser. Special thanks to Sinead Bowers, our quality control and biggest cheerleader. And thank you to you, all of our listeners all over the world. These are your stories. Thank you for sharing them with us. Thank you.